Welcome to the Transportation Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. The switch from analog to digital has been ongoing, converting hard functions into zeros and ones. For the transportation industry, this has made railway operations more reliable and efficient. But the most impactful way that digitizing information could change railways lies in a better management of its existing infrastructure. Here to help us better understand digital engineering and the digital railway is Gareth Dennis, Senior Rail Engineer for Permanent Way. Gareth, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk to us a little more about digital engineering and the digital railway and some of the specific ways that digital engineering is affecting the transportation industry. Uh, yeah, so digital engineering is a huge subject covering covering not just transportation but all sorts of different facets of the engineering industry. Uh, but for 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 railways, um, it, the the key thing that digital engineering enables us to do is is really capture more dimensions than than you're able to on a on a flat drawing. That, ultimately, that's that's really the difference. Is that in the past we've relied on flat drawings of of what what the railway has, what its assets include. And it's very difficult to capture all the information about age, about um, condition, uh, about um, sort of what what possible uh, other technology, alternative technologies there are, what versions of software. You can imagine that all these different dimensions, if you like, lots of different, you know, you could call it metadata that you can chuck into uh, information about the railway that you record as part of the survey process. So that's sort of your step one of doing design for a railway is to actually record what's there now, whether it's Greenfield or, or an existing railway corridor. Uh, recording that information in 3D and beyond with all this extra information, and it allows us, uh, well, me as a design engineer and, and, and my colleagues to, to manipulate the existing railway or the Greenfield site much more accurately and, and, and essentially to second guess some of the issues we'll come across when we start actually building and, and getting people on site, which is obviously the expensive bit of heavy engineering. So the, so as a headline, that that really is is, is the strength of digital engineering. Is, it's part of the design and construction process. Is It's a very powerful tool for doing the construction process before you actually get out and start digging in the ground. Um, so so that, that includes the time element, yeah. So why don't you go ahead and walk me through an example of how digital engineering would apply to a specific part of the uh, design process of a railway. So a really good example is um, a project recently that involved uh, grade separating a railway junction. So essentially, a bit like on your motorway junctions where you have lots of uh, flyovers and things, a railway junction works best when you do that. So this involved building a new stretch of railway line, kind of fast railway line, um, away from the existing railway, which had lots of earthworks. Now, when you build earthworks or you cut earthworks, over time, the earthworks settle and that makes a major difference into the, the engineering things that you have to do to ensure that it's safe for when you actually open it for, for trains to run through. Now, what was really clever with this project, they set up a local GPS grid so that you could have a very high accuracy. Uh, and actually, we used drones overhead, uh, looking down and collecting point cloud data of all the earthworks. So that's cuttings and embankments. And actually, those drones, every day they'd go out and they'd go out, I think it was three times or four times a day, and they'd record the existing position of all the earthworks. And essentially, over time, you got to see how quickly those earthworks were moving. And so at the end of every day, 
uh, we got a 3D output of almost a heat map. I'm sure you've seen heat maps, you know, the, the different colors for different amounts of movement. So if there was a really hot looking part of the, these earthworks after they'd been constructed, you'd know that there was a the settlement was unnatural and, and perhaps something needed to be done. And it allowed us to exercise a huge amount of control over that construction process. Whereas in the past, you'd sort of just load it up and hope for the best. And then, you know, five years down the line, when you've got some un, uh, unnatural settlement, perhaps the, the track starts getting bumpy. It's very expensive to fix that. Whereas during construction, uh, much, much more cost effective. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting before you ever get out there. I mean, imagine imagine going out there and you build a, a railway and then all of a sudden you didn't realize that there was unstable ground and two years down the line it collapses. That's just more issues than it's worth. So, so yeah, it sounds like digital engineering is really helping make the design process on the front end really easy and just more and more cost effective and more efficient. Exactly, yeah. That's the front end, certainly. The, the construction, the design, the surveying process, all that is, is hugely helped by, by not just three dimensions, but actually four dimensions. So, you know, with the earthworks there, it's actually over time as well. So that's, that's fantastic. But actually, potentially more cost saving happens during the lifetime of the asset. So we're in the past, we were very good at building something, folding up the drawing, putting it in a dusty corridor and never looking at it again. Uh, and then, you know, 30, 40 years down the line, a new project comes along wanting to play with the railway and has no idea what is there at the moment. The advantage of digital engineering and of all this information is that it's much easier to record it in a central database. And, and in fact, for it to almost be in the same model, if you like, you know, of all these different uh, interventions on a railway, it's much easier to access that data if everyone can actually get in and use the data. So, for example, surveys that have been done of the railway can get put into this central database. But actually, the designs and then the, the as-built data, so that's the data that the people who build the railway record once they've finished it, all of that can then go into the central database, along with all the data about what product tags, so you can go and buy a new one if it breaks, depths of certain bits of equipment. Again, all that metadata can be pinned into the, the data that goes into the central repository. And actually, that allows the cost of looking after the asset in the long term to be massively reduced. Um, particularly, for example, in the UK at the moment, we are doing a lot of railway electrification it's actually got very expensive. Part of the problem with that is the lack of high quality asset data. So actually, you go out to pile the ground to install a mast to put electric wires over the railway. And that mast, you thought there was clear ground underneath. And actually, there are some cables underneath. These are the sorts of things where that asset data can hugely reduce the cost of the railway long term. Yeah, I mean, that must be a sigh of relief for railway engineers. Absolutely. So how has this affected the actual design of railways on a more intricate level? Have there been any changes to the way that ra railways are looked at um, when they're built? So yes, the, one of the key aspects that I've alluded to is, is four-dimensional uh, modeling, if you like, so the time element. So actually, if we are able to build within a 3D environment and with potentially with virtual reality, this allows us to get our people who the railway will actually impact. So, for example, the people have to operate the station, people who have to look at signals from the train or from the platform. Actually, we get them involved with virtual reality. And so they can walk around this, this platform, for example, a new station. They can walk around on the platform and see the things that they have to look at and understand, catch things that we as, as design engineers don't necessarily think about. You know, the ergonomics, actually, they realize that's an issue. And that allows us to very quickly and cheaply go, oh, actually, yeah, okay, I can, I can change that. And even to the point where we can change that 
whilst they're still walking around. And so, so they're still walking around this 3D environment. We can move an element around and see, how's that? Is that okay? It has changed the way we do design. It's changed the quality of the designs. It allows us, for example, with the 4D, the construction process actually relies quite a lot on the way the design has been done. So actually, when you see there's a conflict within the construction, say, oh, a, a train comes through here to drop off a, a certain bit of construction element, uh, but another train is at, at that point at the same time. And, and you only realize that when you look at it in 4D and see the construction program in front of you, then you can go back and change the design, move some element, perhaps uh, you know some signaling equipment, move it further down the line so it's out of the way. These, these are the things that you can do very cheaply in a three, four D environment, that if you're if you're on track with all the equipment and and people mobilized, it's incredibly expensive to make those changes. So so design is being changed. It's not just making existing designs more efficient. It's changing the way our designs look. Wow, that's that's really exciting, and it's really interesting to see the way that railways are adapting. You know, with new technology, I'm always really interested in seeing the way that drone technology and all of these things that are considered a technology revolution are changing each industry uniquely. Um, So now I want to transition a little bit more into the digital railway. So could you explain to me a little bit about what the digital railway is and how it's unique to the UK? The UK government is is a, a network rail, which is the infrastructure manager for, for mainline railways in the UK. Uh, there's a program called Digital Railway, and essentially, it's talking about moving us from a system where we have fixed signals at the side of the track, whether they're you know an old-fashioned semaphore, which is like an old arm that points up and down, or or more conventional traffic lights like you and I see when we drive our car. Um, moving from having those line side signals, as we call them, to having the signaling equipment actually within the trains. So in-cab signaling, that, that's kind of one of the major facets. Alongside that, so, so there's a system across the whole of, the, of, of Europe and the European railways called ETCS, that's European Train Control System, which is rather than having fixed blocks of signaling. So a train comes into a section that's got a signal either side, uh, it, no, nothing else is allowed into that section, and then the train leaves the section and the signals go from red to green again. Uh, that's called fixed block. In the future, we can move towards a system called moving block signaling, which is where actually the train creates its own safety buffer behind and in front of it, depending on what its speed is, depending on the condition of the railhead. So if it's slippy conditions in rain or maybe leaf fall, the uh, the size of that block around the train it, uh, gets bigger. By having this moving block, you actually increase the capacity of the railway by allowing trains to get closer together. This is really exciting because it has the potential to squeeze quite a bit of extra capacity out of the existing railway network. And for a, for the UK, for example, with a very old, you know, nearly 200-year-old railway system, that's very valuable. So what kind of specific technology goes into making this possible? Do you look at uh, artificial intelligence at all? On top of this, the, the technology and the infrastructure that I've alluded to there with the ETCS, there's a, a, another system that overlays that called the European Rail Traffic Management System, or ERTMS, which is based around actually deciding where trains should go. And that is where things like machine learning and, you know, to an extent, AI come in because they can re- they can learn from, oh, actually, the computer tried to route a series of trains this morning with all, you know, 200 trains all moved past each other in this way, and it didn't work so well. We had so many total minutes of delay. We'll try it again in a slightly different way. Did that work better? Yes. Okay, the computer learns from it. These are all the things that in the past would have been a person within a signal box learning these things. But it's a much slower process, whereas a machine can learn it over, you know, one week of making the same moves. So actually, yeah, things like machine learning that are quite kind of esoteric concepts, very quickly you see their applicability to to a system like the railway. 
What are some specific railways that have already implemented this and what are some of the results that you've seen? So uh, a good example is uh, through the centre of London, there are two railway projects actually that have been going on. One of them is called Crossrail, which has got quite a lot of publicity. The other is called Thameslink. Now, Crossrail will have this signalling technology that we've talked about, but it's not running through the central section yet. So I can't tell you quite what the impact is. However, Thameslink, uh, which is essentially a railway that runs from the north of London through a tunnel that goes under the Thames, uh, sorry, uh, over a bridge that goes over the Thames, in fact, and then down south towards Brighton. So essentially, it's a north-south railway cutting through the, the busy heart of London. Now, the central section essentially runs like a metro system. So you have trains every two minutes even. Now, to facilitate you know, that much traffic moving through the central section, uh, you can't have conventional signaling. You have to have not just the digital signaling that we've talked about, but also a train control system as well. Uh, and in this case, it's called ATO, which is Automatic Train Operation. And actually, the driver essentially sits back and the computer starts driving the train once they enter the tunnels through the central section of London. There's a fantastic video where you see the driver driving the train conventionally on one side and then ATO driving these trains on the other side. The advantage of a computer is that it doesn't drive quite as defensively. What I mean by that is a real driver will be a bit more gentle on the brakes. They'll be a little bit more gentle to accelerate away just to ensure that the, the driver is, is safe. But with potentially, they're a little too conservative in that. Whereas the computer, it can use the modeling that it has to be a little bit more sharp on the brakes, sharp on the accelerator. And actually, you see very quickly with those two side-by-side -side videos that the train controlled by the computer is much further through the section than the driver controlled train. And it's really fascinating to watch that. And so this is a system that's running now, uh, transporting huge numbers of people through the center of London, through from Cambridge and Peterborough and um, cities in the north, kind of in the Midlands, down through towards Brighton and Gatwick Airport and places in the south uh, of uh, London. Well, it sounds like it's really making the transportation in London faster and more efficient, and it's getting people where, where they need to go. I mean, at the end of the day, that is the main goal. But it also sounds like there's just a lot that goes into it, and I'm sure there have been some issues and some, some problems that you've had to overcome with implementing this kind of technology. So what have been those issues in implementing this new tech, and what have been some ways that they've been overcome? Yes. Yeah, so uh, a good example of, of problems that have occurred is actually on the London Underground. So again, it's a metro system, very high frequency of trains. Really, you, the best way you run that system is with, with this dig digital signaling technology. One of the challenges with developing new technology is that everyone's learning. So there was a project on some of the underground lines to implement this sort of uh, signaling technology. And actually, we went through, I think, three different contractors who almost essentially bankrupt themselves with the, within the contract because they were learning this the hard way, learning some of the challenges associated with installing and running this technology. Often, the move from heavy infrastructure, which is where signaling always used to be, to software is a big learning curve for an industry that potentially its workforce can be renowned with being a bit of a stick in the mud. So if you can imagine all the processes for being assured of the safety of, a, of software as opposed to hardware is quite different for a lot of people who are used to signing off on, uh, on signaling. And the key thing, with, particularly with digital signaling, is that signaling is obviously safety critical. You cannot have a, a wrong side failure, by which I mean what should be a red light showing green 
you know that that's how ac- serious accidents happen and so within the uk we had a major accident at clapham in 1988 that really changed how we do signaling it became incredibly uh, safety critical and, and safety focused as it always should have been really but there's the more focus on having lots of redundancy in the system and as you can imagine with software it's quite difficult to bottle in and ensure that you have that redundancy. So if everything goes wrong, you just get red signals everywhere so that everyone's safe. So with with signaling particularly, it's that safety critical element that can make it very cost, very challenging to develop uh, and, and therefore expensive. The way that this was overcome was that essentially there were people locked their heads together a bit and looked, stepped back, looked at the problem and understood where compromises need to be made in infrastructure uh, versus being on the train and Really, the way that these problems get solved is by collaboration. So rather than a potentially combative approach either side of the contract, if you like, I think a more collaborative approach between engineers and between the client has, has enabled the right solution. And I dare say that's true for most engineering problems. Is actually the more collaborative we are, the better we are at solving problems. Yeah, I've seen that personally too in just everything. I mean, having another person to bounce ideas off of, You know, eventually if you're doing something alone, you're going to reach a roadblock and you're not going to know how to fix the issue. So it's great to see that with these kind of big issues, right, you want to make sure that these fast trains that are more automated are safe so that the people riding on them feel comfortable getting from spot to spot. So it's great seeing people come together and make that happen. So now looking into the future, what do you see for the future of digital engineering in the railway space and for the digital railway in the UK? For me, something that's really excited, and I think I alluded to it very briefly, but it's 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 maturing as a technology, is augmented reality. So that's where you can get people out on site, shoving on a, an Oculus Rift or whatever technology it might be, and looking at the real building and seeing things that are about to change on that building. So spotting issues during construction and you know new bits of design being suggested and appearing before your very eyes on the actual building. That, I think that is, that, that, whilst it might not seem that distant away, actually, I, I see that as being fantastically useful for all sorts of different reasons, particularly on the railway, a piece of linear infrastructure where conflicts, things things clashing can happen quite regularly. Another valuable thing is for asset management is if you can put on those goggles, again, augmented reality, and while you're building, you can see where those buried cables are. You can see where that gas pipeline is, or you can see where um, there's a bit of uh, challenging ground, uh, ground conditions that you don't want to intersect with piling or some, something like that. Uh, it, it's, it's augmented reality that I see. Not necessarily the distant future, but it's just as it becomes more usable, I'm very excited by the possibilities of, of that as a technology. And then what about within the digital railway system? So on top of the existing system that we've got, where, or, or rather the, the kind of near future stuff that I've talked about with ETCS and ERTMS, those two kind of European-wide control systems, the next step is really where you start to digitize at either end, where you can start, you have a freight system that's almost totally kind of self-controlled. So you don't have to worry about driver availability and route knowledge because the computer can always do it. Now, I realize that there are lots of people from the railway industry who might hear me saying that and go, oh, no, not can't not have drivers. Well, th- there will always be a place for a driver, I think. But if we make our railway system run incredibly efficiently so that freight is incredibly uh, efficient on rail rather than road, particularly, but also for passengers as well, then we have a safer transport network because every car and HGV you take off the road is a lot of lives saved. The roads are much less, about 20 times less safe than railways in terms of fatalities and injuries. So it's safety 
as well as all the environmental benefits and just you know having having nicer nicer environments in our cities and our towns if you get rid of hgvs so for me that's tricky because a multimodal railway that's one with passengers freight you know stopping trains fast trains it's very complicated to get the system to work with uh, automated trains running without any drivers but if you look to the distant future, that's got to be where it's at, hasn't it? It's got to be a whole system, all the trains talking to each other, all the track working to redirect trains where there's less congestion, the whole network being within the system. So not just one line, but the whole network realizing that if you have a delay somewhere, it can knock on elsewhere. I'm just very excited by the prospects of that. Human error, I think, is what really causes a lot of the accidents and a lot of the issues in this kind of transportation. I mean, just you see it on the highway. Uh, you see that automated cars are already safer and they can detect things before a human driver ever can. And so once once the railway system can get that automation down to a T, it's really going to be a better option than having people try to, you know, it, in the flick of a second try to change a route or, um, or you know, avoid a, a collision or something like that, having a network to do it all on the fly is, is where everything needs to go, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because actually that on a smaller scale, that's been actually the case, certainly in the UK and on quite a few railways around the world already of that automatic route selection, as we call it, does exist, but it exists in quite isolated sections rather than across the whole network and certainly it's quite old tech it's limited in like we talked about machine learning earlier it certainly doesn't do any of that it's really got very basic kind of what you put into the system is what it kicks out so when that really starts incorporating machine learning and kind of the ai element that you alluded to that's when it really makes a step change in difference and of course the railway will always be huge amounts safer than the road because you've got trains being transported on a fixed track form uh, and it's isolated from people walking out and stepping out in front of you. There's not like some kid with a ball running out in front. You know, it's it's always a safer system. But at the moment, certainly in the US, it's still not necessarily cost competitive with roads, hence why so many people drive still. So this technology potentially allows that economic step change that all of a sudden it, it's a no brainer to get the train because it's fast, reliable uh, and cheap. Yeah, well, I look forward to all the innovations in the transportation industry and the way that digital engineering and the digital railway will continue to change, you know, to make transportation easier, more efficient, more reliable. And at the end of the day, that's what we want in all our industries. So thanks again, Gareth, for coming on the podcast and helping us better understand these issues and these innovations. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries to subscribe to your favorite articles, podcasts, and videos in your favorite industry. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.